News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The news going on in other parts of the world over in the UK. Lots of interest right now on how Prince Philip is doing. Right about this time yesterday, we heard that he was in hospital. He walked in on his own. But people are wondering, is he okay? He is, after all, 99 years old. Well, there's a lot of media waiting outside the hospital where he is at. So we thought we would check in with our Global News European Bureau Chief, Crystal Gumansing. Crystal, thank you so much for joining us this morning. First off, what is the latest update on Prince Philip's condition? Well, at this point, it's really just status quo. Buckingham Palace has not released a new statement this morning, and that's really anticipated. We're not sort of expecting a, a running commentary on the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip's condition. Yesterday, they did share a little bit of information. It was a very brief statement, basically saying that um, Prince Philip was feeling unwell for a couple of days, and, and on the advice of his doctors, he was brought to King Edward VII Hospital in central London, that he was brought by car, not by ambulance, and and the uh, official statement saying that it is a precautionary move. It's worth noting that they did anticipate that he would stay here for a couple of nights, so we're still within that time frame, um, but we are not hearing anything new. And, and honestly, at this point, uh, no news, kind of good news situation. I would think so, too. But this is this is not the first time this has happened, right? In the last year, they seem to take these precautionary measures when it comes to his health. Well, I think that's, you know, just reasonable. You're talking about a 99-year-old yes. man. And so there, there is just overall concern with his health. He, you know, much has been talked about him being a very fit and active individual, but we're still talking about a 99-year-old. He'll be 100 in June. So, wow. um, you know, we have been told that, uh, yeah, exactly. We, we know that they have uh, both received their COVID-19 vaccinations. That happened last, last month. Uh, we're told that it's not COVID-related. But if we go back to December of 2019, Nineteen, um, you know, Prince Philip spent four nights at this very facility dealing with what officials at that time called a pre-existing condition. So we'll wait to see if we get any more information. They may end up sharing something just given the the interest. We are talking about Prince Philip, so obviously a lot of concern, not mm-hmm. only here in Britain, but of course uh, from Canadians as well. Yeah, what is that level of interest? Is there a lot of people kind of locked in paying attention to this, do you think? I think people are paying attention, but it's sort of on um, the sideline at the moment. Of course, you know, COVID in general still a huge issue. London still in a national lockdown. Um, but I know yesterday, for example, a, a little story, if you, if you have time, yes. uh, when I was uh, taking a car down here to, uh, to you know, report outside the hospital with many, many other reporters, I will say that. Um, you know, we were chatting with the driver and, and he said, you know, what, what's, what's all this about? Because there are so many cameras and satellite trucks on this street. Uh, we said, oh, well, you know, Prince, Prince Philip is, is in hospital. And, and he was sort of taken aback and instantly wanted to know, well, is, is he okay? Is he going to be okay? So there is that instant level of engagement where, you know, people will go, oh, oh no, what's, what's happening? Mm-hmm. Um, so if they aren't aware of it, they're definitely engaged as soon as they hear about it. All right. Well, Crystal, thank you so much for the update. You're welcome. Take care. Eight, seven, six, five, five. four. Engine ignition, two, one, zero. Relate and liftoff.
That's the sound of the Perseverance rover launch, which happened last July. And its multi-million mile journey is going to come to an end hopefully well this afternoon when NASA attempts to land the rover on Mars. So we thought, let's talk to our favorite commentator on all things to do with space. Mudi Rahman is a research associate at the Dunlap Institute for Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto. And I'm sure he's pretty excited about this. Good morning, Mubdi. Good morning. And I am incredibly excited about this. So why should people be excited? Why, what's so great about it? Well, I mean, first off, it's not every day that we go to another planet. It seems like, you know, it, it feels a little more commonplace because we've gone a couple of times, but it's still a rare event that we send anything that was made by humans to another world. And that's already a big deal. Um, but secondly, like this is the latest and next generation that's going to be able to tell us what Mars is truly like. Uh, and it's an exciting, impressive feat that the engineers and scientists have been able to put this together. It only took about a year, a year and a bit, uh, sorry, less than a year, actually, uh, to travel that way. And now they're going to be able to see whether or not we can actually land on Mars and start yet another rover program. So it's a big deal for Mars, right? Because there's two other uh, craft that are in orbit, one from Saudi Arabia, one from China, and then you've got this one from NASA. And all of this was because there were, the orbit between Mars and Earth was was close last summer, right? That's correct, yes. So it would made the, the travel time that would normally be, uh, you know, potentially multiple years, um, right down to like less than a year uh, to be able to do it. So it was a perfect window to do it. Okay, so what are we hoping to learn? What is NASA hoping to learn from Perseverance? Well, so basically, if you remember the uh, the older Mars rovers, like Curiosity, um, this is like them on steroids. What we've been able to do is take a lot of the newer technology right down to imaging technology. There's, uh, you know, over 20 cameras on this, uh, as well as new instrumentation to actually go and kind of do a little bit of digging and try to figure out what's actually underneath the surface of Mars and actually capture, uh, you know, soil samples and, well, you know, mineral samples and rock samples to try to figure out what Mars was like, you know, millions of years ago. Because one of the things that we do know about Mars is that it did have liquid water at an earlier stage. And one of the cool things about Earth, uh, to, you know, bring this back to, you know, an Earth-centric thought, is um, as soon as Earth had liquid water, we had life. Like, uh, you know, if you look at the geological timescales, right. basically the minute you had water, life seems to have appeared. Right. This what makes is that me the case with Mars. Yeah, this makes me think of the original movie Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's what this makes me think of. Oh yeah, no, entirely. It's <laughs> uh, and you know it's it's funny how close these things are. Um, so, but the the big questions that we're we're still trying to you know trying to figure out is. You know, if you dig under, a little bit underneath the Earth's surface, you actually go back in time. And so that's been how geologists on Earth have better been able to understand what Earth's history has been like. We've not really been able to do that with Mars up until now. And this is the first rover that with a robot can actually do that digging and get, you know, under those deeper surfaces to try to figure out what's been, you know, what Mars looked like in the past. Okay, so is rover going to analyze those samples? Like, is that rover going to do all the work? 
So it's going to do a bit of the work, but the actually really cool thing that they're building into this mission here is that it's actually going to collect the samples and bring them to a depot, a place on Mars where a future mission can go and pick them up and potentially even bring them back to Earth for further analysis. That's that pretty be ambitious. Time. Yeah, and that'd be the first time since basically the moon we would have had uh, you know, rocks from another body in our solar system so, uh, to actually analyze. So, Mubdi, is this a competition between countries? As I mentioned, China's got a spacecraft in orbit, so does Saudi Arabia. Are these all separate missions? Is there any kind of cooperation? So, I mean, when it comes to big, massive Mars missions like this, there's always some degree of cooperation. We talk about this being a NASA mission, but NASA uh, and you know, works with teams of scientists across the world uh, to, you know, basically you want the best people on this regardless of nationality, right? You want to make sure that that rover lands, that, you know, it gets through the atmosphere quite well and it operates correctly. And it doesn't matter if those people who, are, who know how to do this are based in the United States or in Canada or in Europe. Uh, so, it, you know, especially when it comes to the science, it is, you know, it is an open free-for-all. One of the things that NASA tends to be good about is uh, once the data is there, it's open. They try to make it available for all scientists around the world to be able to see. Um, so, yeah, I guess, you know, there's a bit of a narrative of competition when it comes to these other probes. And certainly you want, you know, it's a, you know, a feather in the cap for, uh, for China to be able to actually send a, a you know, send a mission out to Mars. Right. Uh, but when it comes to the science, uh, it's, it, we need all hands on deck. So I take it you're going to be glued to your computer today watching this. Oh, entirely. And I mean, just it's it's very dramatic because the reentry is, you know, it, it comes down to physics and there's been nothing that's been different about the way that we reenter planets, be it the Earth or be it Mars, um, you know, since the era of the first rockets, right? Like we still can't actually communicate with a... Um, with a rocket or with any sort of spacecraft as it's entering an atmosphere because of the plasma that gets generated by the heat, you know, as it's falling in to the planet, it actually like, you know, pushes off the atmosphere and that makes it much, much warmer. You know, we're talking about thousands of degrees Celsius. So that means that it can't actually send any radio signals back. So we don't know what's going on until we hear the signal that it's landed. Okay. So when is that supposed to happen? So that's going to be a little bit after uh, you know, 2 p.m. Eastern, I believe that's 11 uh, a.m. Yeah. Pacific. So uh, that's when, you know, it's going to be about 10 minutes or so from when it starts its, uh, you know, when it starts its separation down to the landing itself. Uh, and so that's going to be a very nerve wracking 10 minutes. Okay. So before I let you go, Mubdi, uh, I have to ask you now that I started this conversation, what's your favorite space movie? Oh, uh, that that is a mean question. Let me tell you, because what? I feel like anything I don't say, I'm throwing under the bus. Uh, but you know what? Gravity. I have to say, really? gravity was fantastic. Yeah, um, just I think it really captures um, what the. I mean, obviously, there are you know people have complained that there are you know some scientific inaccuracies with it, but you know every space machine has to have a little bit. Uh, but just the narrative of how alone you are and how helpless you are when you're in space and how, you know, we've made it seem normal, but it's, it's really phenomenal that we can do this and we can bring people back and alive. And, you know, Sandra Bullock is fantastic. In that I'm, movie as well, so. 
<laughs> See, I'm fascinated by that because I can't watch movies uh, very rarely about the news media because I'm like, well, that's not how it works. That's not realistic. That's not the way it goes. But so right. you're saying, do you have that problem when you watch a space movie? Like, did you watch The Martian and think, no, this is totally unrealistic? Uh, well, I mean, I think as, as an astronomer, I don't know, you know, somebody who deals with this, you got to turn off that, uh, you know, disbelief a little bit, uh, simply because, you know, you, you recognize that if it was truly just a normal space movie where you're trying to, you know, describe it in real time, it would be an incredibly boring movie, right? No one wants to watch <laughs> yeah. a year's worth of travel to get to so a place true. where nothing happens. Um, so you, you have to accept that a little bit. Uh, but you know, when it comes down to it, there are, you know, there are things that you can accept and things that you can't. Martian is a good example of where they tried to get the science as close to right as possible, right? The timescales on getting back and forth um, to Mars are about right. The idea of, you know, what the Martian soil would actually be composed of and potentially even growing potatoes in right. some, you know, sort of greenhouse, that's not absolutely crazy, right? Like, it huh. seems insane to us, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not scientifically impossible. I love um, it. So that Martian, the Martian's actually one of the ones that they did a better job of than, say, I don't know, uh, like, um, what, a uh, the attack of the Martians or you know, some of the other <laughs> alien-based ones. See there, that's where you draw the line, alien-based ones. Mubdi, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me. And have fun today. That's Mubdi Rahman, Research Associate at the Dunlap Institute for Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto. He, like so many other people, glued to their computer today to find out whether the Perseverance rover launched by NASA last July is going to be able to land on Mars. Uh, the United States has a decent track record with this. So the only country in the world that has managed to land something on Mars and not just put it into Mars's orbit, but every single time it can be tricky. So we'll be following along with that quite closely. Really interesting new poll out from Ipsos Public Affairs. It kind of dives into racial issues in Canada and how Canadians feel about those issues. Joining us now to talk more about that is Sean Jehan, who is with Ipsos Public Affairs. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about this poll then. Was this for Black History Month? You thought, okay, let's take a look at how Canadians are feeling about this? Yeah, a feeling about Black History Month or also rather just feeling about different issues related to the Black community today, whether that's, you know, our public education, curriculum, systemic racism, and all of that stuff. Okay, so tell me, what were some of the most interesting results that you found? So I would say that one of the things that came up um, quite significantly was the difference between uh, perceptions related to, you know, uh, what the visible minority thinks uh, compared to what white Canadians think. So what came up again and again was when it comes to personal experience of black Canadians, visible minorities are generally much more likely to agree with statements. Um, So, for example, they're more likely to agree that COVID had a disproportional impact on black Canadians compared to uh, white Canadians. So, and we know this from StatsCan, but uh, obviously um, the pandemic, while it has had a global impact nationally across our country as well, um, there are some uh, populations that have been harder hit. And visible minorities are more likely to agree that, yes, Black Canadians have, um, you know, um, they had a more significant burden of COVID to bear. And And the difference... Sorry, go ahead. I was just wondering, too, there was another stat that I saw that was interesting, is that you also asked Canadians to estimate the size of the Black community in Canada. And what happened? 
Yeah, so they were a bit far off, I would say. There's a significant overestimation of the black population in Canada. So um, to give you an idea, the average Canadian estimate that we found in our poll was that 21% of the population is black, whereas the actual proportion sits closer to 3.5% as per the census. So there's like a massive gap between perception and reality. Yeah, That is so interesting. And so what did Canadians think about systemic racism when you asked them about that? So we tested a couple of different aspects of systemic racism. The first one was um, whether there is, in fact, a belief that systemic racism persists in Canada, whether it's built into the Canadian economy, the government, the educational system. And more than half of Canadians, so 54%, actually do believe that, yes, systemic racism does exist or persist, rather, in Canada. And then another aspect we tested was related to police engagement. So even more Canadians, two-thirds, believe that black individuals are treated less fairly than white individuals by the Canadian police. So there is a consensus that this is a problem in our country. And was there a racial difference when it came to viewing the state of systemic racism? Uh, Yes, actually. Um, So... To be honest, uh, it's less stark when it comes to uh, viewing systemic racism. Uh, White Canadians do also believe that systemic racism persists. The major difference actually is a generational difference. So um, it's Hmm. older Canadians who are less likely to perceive systemic racism to be an issue in Canada compared to younger Canadians under the age of 55. Um, But this could potentially also be related to the fact that when we tested um, you know, whether they think that uh, public education in Canada does a good job at teaching black history. Older Canadians were more likely to say, no, not really. They were more likely to agree that it's not doing such a great job. So it's potentially related to the lack of formal education on the topic. Interesting. All right. Well, listen, thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you for having me. Appreciate your time. That's Sean Jehan, an account manager at Ipsos Public Affairs, talking about their latest polling, which, by the way, you can find more of on our website, globalnews.ca. Well, the North Shore waterfront is about to undergo some major changes. This is going to be a process of a few years because this long-awaited development called Harborside is about to get underway. We say long-awaited, we're talking almost seven years that this thing has been under the planning and approval stages. It's a mixed-use community set to break ground on phase one this spring. So we thought, let's get an idea of what this is going to look like since this is going to impact so many people. You'll be seeing it definitely if you spend any time in that area. Joining us now is Brian McCauley, who is the President and CEO of Concert Properties. Brian, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you very much for having me. How big is this project? Well, Harborside is on uh, now being renamed as North Harbor, and I'll tell you why in a moment, is on 12 acres of waterfront. So almost over half a kilometer of waterfront on the North Shore. It's a significant development. Okay, how long has this been in the planning? Well, I can tell you that Concert actually bought this property, which was the former Fullerton Lumber site, uh, mill site, back in 1996. So I know you mentioned in your introduction that we've been at this planning process for seven years, but we've actually owned the land for 25 years. Whoa. Like, so was this something you'd always planned, or, or how did this come well, together then? It's evolved over time. So I will tell you the reason for us buying the 65 acres of land back in 96 was uh, primarily to develop a commercial development site that exists on most of the property today, including the North Shore Auto Mall. And then in the last 10 years, we realized that as uh, the city of North Vancouver has matured and has become truly one of the major nodes and, and metropolitan living areas in 
Metro Vancouver, we realized that Harborside or the remaining lands at Harborside were really well suited for uh, mixed-use development and the introduction of residential. So 10 years ago, we pursued an official community plan amendment and then a rezoning application for the remaining 12 acres of waterfront, uh, which we now call North Harbour. Now, Brian, this couldn't have been easy. And I know people are very sensitive to big changes like that happening in their neighbourhood. So what have you done to allay the concerns of people? Yeah, firstly, there was uh, concerns that this land was originally in, in many people's minds or some people's minds earmarked for commercial and industrial development. But uh, through uh, several years of community consultation um, and a very supportive council under Mayor Daryl Masato at the time, and Linda Buchanan's been equally as supportive of, uh, of North Harbour developing as it is, um, we were able to demonstrate that this is a wonderful opportunity within 10-minute walking distance of CBUS to be able to introduce a true mixed-use community into the North Shore and the city of North Vancouver. So it was a long journey, but it was ultimately well-received and supported by council along the way. So what's changed, though, during this time? Because obviously, Brian, the last year has changed everything. Uh, Mm. The market, the real estate market has also changed. Has that impacted what you as a developer uh, are doing in terms of the product? Because I, I would imagine this is a conversation a lot of developers are having right now. Yeah, and I think it's a very good question, Simi. Certainly what COVID-19 has, uh, has exposed for us, a couple things. One is we're very surprised at the resiliency of the residential market. But what COVID's exposed is really the difference between the haves and the have-nots. We're seeing, obviously, uh, significant demand for single-family homes, for larger uh, condominium product. Certainly those that have money and have jobs are able to upgrade their homes given the low interest rate environment. So we're seeing a surprising strong demand for housing. Um, On the other side of this unfortunate COVID uh, health crisis is the fact that we're seeing more people that have lost their jobs and more people that don't have the opportunity to maintain even affordable rental homes. So, you know, our plan going forward is always been to be responsive to the market that we see, uh, North Shore in particular. The first phase of development will introduce rental residential homes as well as for sale condominiums. And we do uh, expect the majority of our buyers and renters to come from the North Shore. Those people that already understand the benefits of living close to nature uh, on in North Vancouver, we see them as our primary right. people uh, living here. But what are they looking for? Like, are they looking for a certain size? I feel like people want something a bit bigger these days because the pandemic means they're spending more time indoors. Yeah. And I think certainly our product offering in the first phase, Simi, will be larger than you've seen in many projects in the downtown, say, lower Lonsdale area of North Vancouver. There'll be slightly a larger product offering than uh, what's been offered in the past. So, yeah, we were uh, always paying attention to what the demand from the purchaser or renter is. But we always try and balance that, of course, with affordability, because while people may desire having more space, it costs more to build that. So we're always trying to balance the affordability with the space. Are you able to adjust? Because I'm sure there's products in the pipeline right now or projects in the pipeline that you may have to rethink a little bit. 
Yeah, we've we've got a lot of projects in our planning pipeline, over 9,000 homes today between Victoria, Metro Vancouver and Toronto. And we're certainly, those that are at the early stages, we're looking at in terms of uh, adjustments on plans. Others, we're very confident that what we've designed is uh, appropriate for the marketplace. So sure, certainly the many of our competitors would be rethinking some of the product offering they're, they're bringing to the market. All right. Well, Brian, best of luck. Thanks for your time this morning. You're very welcome. Thank you. That's Brian McCauley, the president and CEO of Concert Properties. Now, if you spend any time on the North Shore, then you know that huge development there uh, along the waterfront is finally getting underway. They bought the property in 1996, he said. Uh, This last little bit, though, has been something like seven years in the planning. Big projects like that don't happen very often because uh, people get very used to what their neighborhood looks like, right? So this one is going to change what that North Shore waterfront looks like. If you live in that area, would love to know what you think about all that. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. Oh, I love this next story. Okay, we're talking about North Shore Rescue a lot, right? Because they're continually being called out to help people who get stranded, maybe go off the trail. It seems never ending. They are an incredible group of men and women who are putting themselves in harm's way to save people who get into trouble when they're on the mountains. And wouldn't you love to support them? Well, of course you would. So now there's a great way for you to do that. And joining us with more on this is North Shore teenager Camden Hussey. Good morning, Camden. Camden. Morning, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for being here. Listen, tell me about your idea to help North Shore Search and Rescue. Um, well, um, when I was in grade 10, it all started with socks. We brought in some socks and uh, thought that like uh, it would be a great idea to raise money through that because it was originally a school project. And I thought this is a great way to um, incorporate both. And uh, then last this winter and last winter, we brought in some toques and sold them, and that went really well. So this year is masks because everyone needs them, and uh, you can't really have enough of them. So true. That is so true. <laughs> so you branded yeah, them is. with North Shore Search and Rescue. So did you do you work with North Shore Search and Rescue with this? Um, I just kind of run it by them, and if they like it and they uh, they think it's a good idea, they just let me go ahead with it. Um, but yeah, so I designed them and worked with the, uh, supplier with colors and the logo and stuff like that. Okay. I know you've been getting some attention on this. So how are sales doing Camden? They're going pretty well. They're going pretty well. Yeah. So far so good. So hopefully if it keeps going this way, we'll, we'll order some more and be able to raise some more money for North Shore Rescue. Okay, so how does this work? How many do you get? What do they look like? Tell me all about the product. So uh, in a pack, there's two. One blue, one black. Um, they have, there are two layers. There's one disposable filter included and um, um, adjustable ear loops and stuff like that. Like, uh, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty universal. Like, I think any face can fit them. Okay, so it's a pack of two for how much? For $15. That's a deal. Camden, are you sure you're charging enough? (laughs) I know. It is kind of a good deal, so it's good for blowing them out. No kidding, I guess, but it's for such a great cause. Do you have an idea of how much money you have raised at this point? Um, I'm not too sure as of now, but our goal is to raise uh, about 4000 and if we bring in more, then it could go up five, six, 
just see how it goes. See how successful we are this round. Okay, so let everybody know then, Camden, where can we buy these masks? So uh, they can email me at uh, four, uh, number four, North Shore Rescue at gmail.com. And then there we can coordinate payment and pick up. So this is pretty, this is like, I love that this is kind of pretty basic at this point, but you've been getting a lot of attention for this, haven't you? Yeah, for some reason, like the other fundraisers, I would get some attention and um, some things, but this one has been a lot bigger. I don't really know why, but I guess it's just because <laughs> masks are the... They're the thing. They're the thing right now, yeah. Yeah, you got to go with it. You got to go with it. I have a feeling you're going to be selling quite a few of these. So, okay, once again, that is for North Shore Rescue at gmail.com. Is that what it was? Yeah, that's right. All right. You want put me down for two? I'll be emailing you. Camden, thank you. Perfect. Thank you. That is Camden Hussey. He's a North Shore teenager who's decided on this, what started as a school project, to raise money in support of North Shore Search and Rescue. So you heard him there. Two face masks, one blue, one black. They've got the little North Shore Search and Rescue kind of logo on them. Uh, and you get them two for $15. All you have to do is email him. It's the number four, North Shore Rescue at gmail.com. Tell Camden you're down for two. He'll get things going. He'll make sure that you get those and arrange payment. And the money goes to North Shore Search and Rescue. What a great idea. They could certainly use your support. If folks aren't aware of the bylaw, we say, hey, you need to be out. We work with them. Sometimes it takes two or three days, but we've had some really good success in the rest of our parks, um, uh, you know, across the city. That is Vancouver Park Board General Manager Donnie Rosa yesterday evening speaking on the Linda Steele Show. And that's because the deadline for Strathcona Park residents to vacate the west side of the park passed yesterday morning, but as of yesterday evening, there were some tents that remained on that west side of the park. So is there a concern about this or is this all going to be okay as it unfolds over the next few days to talk about those concerns? Pete Fry joins us now, Vancouver City Councillor and Strathcona neighbourhood resident. Uh, Thanks for being back with us. Morning, Simi. So what does it look like there this morning? Well, I I haven't been by this morning yet. I'll be going there after this call. Um, I don't imagine it's going to look a lot different. Um, We did get a a pre-brief last night suggesting that there were still um, a number of tents there and sort of advising that this is um, complicated work that does take some time. And, you know, bearing in mind that these are some pretty complex uh, cases with individuals who... um, you know, don't uh, live within the sort of same parameters as you and I uh, with, with you know, deadlines and schedules. And so uh, this this deadline to vacate the side of the park has always been considered sort of a soft deadline, recognizing that it's a little bit more complicated to move folks who are, you know, marginalized and vulnerable. So what is that process like then? Because this isn't the, we're asking you to leave the park yet. This is the, we just need you to get over to this side of the park, Right. Yeah, I think it's further complicated by the notion that a lot of the folks who are on the west side of the park are there quite deliberately because of the uh, leadership that runs the sort of central camp. Uh, And they're, uh, for whatever reasons, not welcome within that camp, or they're uh, afraid of the the leadership structure, or they have uh, some kind of issues that that preclude them from wanting to participate in in that encampment and rather would... uh, prefer to be on the peripheral of it. So I think the hope is, is that a lot of those folks will be able to, to actually direct into 
real appropriate uh, permanent housing or shelter, uh, rather than relocating them at all to the west side of the park or the east side, sorry, where they don't want to be. But again, I, I, I would imagine that's on a case by case basis as uh, outreach teams work with the individuals and determine what where they're at. Yeah, that sounds kind of alarming that, that they wouldn't even feel, you know, safe or welcome on the other side of the park. So what what is the protocol then, Councillor Fry, for dealing with that leadership on that side of the park? Like, do they, they're supposed to be welcoming for people who don't feel welcome anywhere else. And yet, look what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I make no bones about the fact that I've uh, not found the leadership within the, the encampment structure to be very uh, productive. Um, so I, you know, we, we have the commitment from the province that, uh, we'll have housing and enable enough housing to enable us to do an injunction and seek an enforcement order, uh, by the end of April. Um, you know, um, council and, and I think the most park board are in alignment that we'd like to see that even move sooner than, than that, if at all possible. Um, you know, there's, you know, the, the reality, the unfortunate reality is that for our on-the-ground teams and the BC Housing contracted workers who are in the park, um, they are walking a kind of delicate balance, working mm-hmm. with the leadership and trying to respect their um, degree of autonomy that they, they claim within the park and also sort of meet these objectives that we set out to, to clear the park um, as soon as we can. Uh, I do recognize that operationally, that's a lot more complex, and it's easy for me to sit here on the phone with you and 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 say how it should move faster. But the reality is, is this is pretty challenging work, and we're dealing with you know a complex population. All that said, uh, I would um, I'm I'm frustrated with the the slow pace of even the ancillary things, and we still see a significant amount of of, of garbage and just sort of general destruction and, and detritus. Uh, and for, you know, for those of us who live in, in the neighborhood and, and, you know, for me, that was, I went, I attended Strathcona Park every day, you know, over, over three, three different dogs lives. So that's been my park for a long time. And, um, and it, it hurts to see it so disrespected and just the, the extent of garbage and just absolute, um, disrespect not just from folks who have left the garbage there but from our system that fails to really address it in any kind of meaningful way i know our our on the ground teams are working with peers to clean up this garbage rather than just going in and 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 cleaning it up uh appropriately but it's a never-ending stream of garbage as well so i don't know how we you know and that's been the intent of clearing the west side of the park first to enable you know the significant soil remediation that's going to going to have to happen for me it's frustrating because when this encampment first landed back in June i i asked the park board and the uh, the gm of parks at the time to please uh contain the encampment because when the encampment landed it was in a in a in a small quarter of the park mm-hmm. um and 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 i said please put a put a fence around it because if you don't it will spread to the entire park the park will be unusable for everybody the encampment and we will have a huge remediation bill on our hands and now here we are with the entire entire surface area of the park will need to be remediated uh significant amount of damage and destruction and 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 obviously garbage that has to be removed and it's deprived the 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 neighborhood of the limited green space that strathcona has right now 
So for me, that's a frustrating yeah. piece. Uh, I do recognize we have a new general manager of Parks and Recreation who I think is taking a more assertive position on on getting it done. Um, and uh, but but here we are, and yeah. there's people there now. There's garbage there now. It's going to take a while to 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 fix this. Uh, but it's super frustrating, and I'm you know it's tough for me walking around the neighborhood in the mornings with the dog because. I'm accountable to, to my community and, you know, and that there's nothing I can do to make this move faster. I wish I could. Does this tell us, though, that don't we need a prevention strategy? We've watched this happen three times now, whether it was Strathcona, Crab Park, Oppenheimer, whatever the case may be. And these things fester, they get out of control. We get to this very frustrating you know, point. Is, is there not a way for the city of Vancouver to say, we need to have a prevention strategy to make sure that we do nip a situation like this in the bud as soon as we see it start to happen? Yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, in, in fairness, this is a pattern we see throughout, uh, you know, the lower mainland in southern British Columbia. We see it in Nanaimo, Victoria, Beacon Hill Park, Maple Bridge, Surrey. So this isn't just endemic to Vancouver. It's a little bit more complicated because here in Vancouver, we also have a separate elected park board, which adds a sort of layer of jurisdictional complication. Um, I will say that, you know, the, the park board and, and, and parks and cities in the region in general have been sort of frustrated by the the um, Charter Rights and Freedom Section 7, which enables folks, if they have nowhere to go, to seek shelter in a park overnight. Um, where the legal test sort of fell apart was what is seeking shelter overnight versus a permanent structure. So the Park Board did introduce this new Parks Control Bylaw uh, amendment back in, I think it was October of last year, that really makes it a little bit more clear what is and is not seeking shelter overnight as per the the Charter Rights and Freedoms. So it now says that it's pretty clear that you can't set up this permanent structure. So hopefully, and and, and I do have a lot of confidence in the new GM of Parks Donny Rosa, Mm -hmm. who you had uh, earlier on the, on the, on the clip there. Uh, I do have a lot of confidence that, that, um, that they're going to be a lot more proactive uh, because everybody recognizes that if, if, if we, we, move in on this park and we don't have places for the people who are legitimately homeless to go, we're going to have another problem with it popping up somewhere else. So we need to separate out the folks who are legitimately homeless. And that way, if if the the sort of protester types choose to set up in another park, we've already taken care of the folks who have the legitimate need and we can be more assertive in ensuring that the protesters don't set up in another park just to continue the cycle all over again. No kidding. All right. Well, we're going to be checking back in with you, I'm sure. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, you too. All Bye-bye. right. That's Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councillor, Strathcona neighborhood resident, talking about the agonizingly slow process of getting that Strathcona Park situation resolved. Another tiny, minuscule baby step hopefully taken today. We'll keep you updated. Street crime, shoplifting, we've had a lot of discussion about those crimes during the pandemic. And then we hear uh, that the Vancouver Police Department has arrested 130 suspects in a crackdown on shoplifting. That happened over a four-week period that ended back on February the 12th. So how much of an increase is that over the same period last year, which is just before this pandemic started? It's a 250% increase. So joining us now to talk more about the investigation and what led to it is Constable Steve Addison with the Vancouver Police Department. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. This sounds like a huge operation. What can you tell us about it? 
Yeah, so as you said, the pandemic um, that we've all been dealing with uh, for the last year has um, had a, a significant impact impact throughout the city. One of the impacts that it's had has been on property crime. Now, we have seen uh, a significant decrease in some types of crime, like uh, thefts from vehicle. There's fewer cars on the road, fewer out-of-town travelers, and there's just not as many break-ins to cars that are happening. But corresponding to that, what we have seen is an increase in shoplifting thefts, specifically violent shoplifting thefts. So over the course of uh, between 2020 and 2019, we saw a 260% increase in cases just in the downtown core where shoplifters were using violence and weapons, things like bear spray and knives and needles and other weapons, physical force to commit their thefts. We're continuously re- responding to uh, calls from the public and reports of loss prevention officers, security guards, staff members being assaulted by shoplifters. And by and large, these are people who are really, they're, they're, they're small business owners trying to make a go of it. They're staff members who are trying to make a go of it, and they really shouldn't have to put up with this. So we put together a project that ran for four weeks uh, between January 12th and February 12th, and we worked very closely with um, store security. And what we did was we we were uh, we had a dedicated team of officers who worked closely with them, and we waited uh, out, essentially waited outside their stores. And when the security officers saw somebody committing a theft, rather than confront that person and attempt to detain that person themselves, uh, they simply followed that person out of the store. They communicated with us, led them into the. Uh, direction of the waiting police officers, and we were then able to arrest them. So it, it allowed us to take uh, a lot of the, the risk and the potential for uh, violence and harm away from the store, uh, store security and allowed us to arrest these people. 130 um, people, that's a lot though. Is that what you were expecting? Is that Did that exceed expectations? Um, you know what? It's not surprising, Simi. Uh, as I say, we're responding to these calls every day we knew there had been uh, a marked increase uh, from 2019 to 2020. So, no, it's not surprising. A lot of the people that we did see were uh, people uh, who are known to us. Uh, a lot of people are uh, known offenders, people uh, already on probation for uh, other thefts from stores. And we did arrest another number of people during this initiative um, multiple times. There was one person who got arrested six different times. Wow. Uh, during during the four weeks of this project. So what are the next steps then? What happens? To th- is, was this like a ring? Was there anything organized about it? Like, do you think this will have an impact now on, on shoplifting in the downtown core? Well, we hope it sends a message to, to uh, well, first of all, we hope it sends a message to um, shopkeepers and sta- uh, uh, um, store uh, staff that we take this seriously. And when they tell us about a problem that's happening in their area, that we will respond to it um, and do so swiftly. And moreover, we hope it sends a message to people who are committing these thefts that it won't be tolerated, that we're watching you and we're going to arrest you and recommend charges uh, when uh, when we catch you. So, we, yeah, we certainly hope it has an impact and drives down some of the crime rates. Uh, six times, though, that is a lot. Are, are there, do you think, numerous repeat offenders in this group? Yeah, there are. There are a number of people who, out of the uh, those that were arrested during this, this initiative, uh, there were a number, of, a number of people who arrested more than once, yes. Okay, so then what are the next steps? Is this something you're going to keep up doing? Well, we're always looking for innovative ways uh, and new ways to uh, address crime in the city. This was a project, uh, an initiative that uh, was dedicated for the four weeks. It did end February 12th, but that does not mean we're, not, we're going to stop uh, 
um, looking for and arresting people who are who are committing crime. Uh, when we hear about crime, whether it's in the downtown core or anywhere else in this city, we're going to respond to it. We're going to respond swiftly. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. Thanks, Amy. Steve Addison is a media relations officer, Constable Steve Addison, with the Vancouver Police Department talking about uh, this project that ended on officially February the 12th, but they said they're going to keep on with the um, idea behind it. Uh, and that is cracking down on what they've seen as violent shoplifting cases. 130 suspects arrested uh, during that four-week period that they were undertaking this. That is huge. One suspect, they said in particular, arrested six times. That's nuts. Now, this has had a huge impact for businesses that are in the downtown core, and we mean impact in a negative way. It has been tough for them. Shoplifters were using violence and weapons, things like bear spray and knives and needles and other weapons, physical force to commit their thefts. That's some scary stuff. That is Constable Steve Addison with the Vancouver Police Department. He was talking to us about half an hour or so ago about the 130 suspects arrested by Vancouver Police over a four-week period in their crackdown efforts at these kind of violent shoplifting cases the downtown core has been experiencing in the past year. One of the businesses hit by this, London Drugs. I mean, they have a pretty big store right at West Georgia and Granville downtown. They've got a number of other locations too. So we thought Let's talk to their general manager of loss prevention about what they have been seeing. Tony Hunt joins us now. Good morning, Tony. Good morning. How are you doing, Cindy? I am good, thank you. Uh, tell me, when you heard about this Vancouver police kind of crackdown on this, how did you feel about that? Well, we uh, we work really closely with uh, police to ensure that uh, it's safe uh, for employees and for our customers. And so we were delighted to work with them on this. I think it's something that we've... Uh, you know, done before on a smaller scale, and we were excited to do it on a, a grander scale, given the face of what we're seeing in uh, on the streets right now. Yeah, what are you seeing? What kind of impact has it had in your stores? Well, we've seen a dramatic impact. Um, it's been a five-year trend that's been building. Um, you know, we've seen violent crime increasing in the Vancouver area, uh, about 8.7%, I think, according to the Vancouver Police Report over the last five years. During the pandemic, it just got so much worse, and despite stats that show that crime, uh, certain types of crime actually went down during the pandemic. It was a bit of a crime funnel that pointed all the crime at the stores and essential businesses that remained open. And uh, that coupled with the fact that people aren't being very nice to each other, as we see in a lot of assaults and disagreements on the streets, it's been, uh, it's been, well, brutal, quite frankly. Yeah, what's it been like for some of the employees? What have they had to face? Well, we've had so many incidents and, uh, you know, the videos that were shown from the various retailers are, 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 are an indication of what we're seeing. Um, you know, hammers being brought into stores during thefts, veiled threats. We've seen situations where, you know, staff members simply walk up to somebody and say, hi, can I help you? And they're rewarded with expletives and racial slurs or drinks thrown at them. Um, you know, yesterday we had a situation in a municipality outside of Vancouver where somebody dropped a bunch of live ammunition as they were doing a theft and leaving the store. So, it, you know, it's getting it's getting dangerous. That is crazy. Like that's I can't even believe you see some of this stuff. It's a uh, it's a very disturbing trend, and it's one where retailers aren't sitting idly by. We're spending millions and millions of dollars on security measures. Retailers across the country are doing this because it's happening uh, across our country. And, uh, you know, their, their main concern is retailers. Our main concern is to make sure that our staff are safe and our customers are safe. And uh, so, you know, we, we're, we're doing what we can and, and we really need support like we've gotten from the VPD 
and more from the government and the courts. You raise an interesting point, though, where we were talking about it because this was the Vancouver Police Department that put this out. But are you saying like in London drugstores in all locations, would you say, are seeing some kind of an uptick like this? If you um, if you look at some of the work the Retail Council of Canada has been doing across the country, there are a lot of retail task forces that are starting to take hold now where governments are partnering with businesses and security agencies and the courts and probation officers, uh, you know, social workers, and they're working together on innovative solutions to solve really aggressive theft problems and uh, a lot of violence that are happening in communities. And there's several provinces across the country that are doing an awful lot in this space. So what do you tell your employees to do in a situation like that, Tony? Well, we spend a lot of time on training to make sure that the employees are safe. We make sure that we teach them de-escalation techniques and we, all of our loss prevention people are trained for, you know, six to eight weeks before they even start on the job. And uh, so, we, so we really make sure that our people are equipped with as much knowledge as possible. Where this is getting off the rails now, though, is, is a lot of these incidents that are happening are largely not preventable because of the nature of them. Somebody walks by a store and just randomly throws a hot coffee across the cash registers. Um, you know, it's really difficult to de-escalate a situation with that much randomness. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. Too. Have you had to increase sort of the number of loss prevention officers that you have in every store or security in the stores? Well, we've made significant increases over the last couple of years. Um, the the interesting thing is, is a lot of these incidents um, are um, happening regardless of the security people there. A lot of them, as witnessed by something like this, are happening where police are really close by. Um, so a lot of this behavior is just downright the type of thing that needs to be managed um, outside before people come into the store. It also sounds like, from the way you've described it and police described it, is it less about stealing and more about the violent act? Yeah, I mean, shoplifting is a is a devastating it has a devastating impact on businesses. And I mean, there's some businesses that during this pandemic, their survivability is on the line because the levels of theft they're seeing, and it's a big problem. But far and away, the biggest concern is the health and safety of employees. And the reason that we're so active with this now, and we've really enjoyed partnering with the VPD and other police agencies across the country, is because this issue is affecting the staff. And, 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 and we need to be helping those employees and those frontline workers with support. Now, Tony, is it a bit frustrating, though, when you do hear of the repeat offenders? Uh, Constable Addison mentioned that one of the suspects they arrested, they arrested six times. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, I was talking with another business person. Um, they had an incident at one of their stores a couple of days ago. Um, one of our loss prevention people had actually called it in. Uh, we looked it up and we had, we had actually dealt with the individual who got arrested in that file 66 times since 2017. You're kidding. Um, it, and, and so these people are, you know, um, you know, walking the street, continuing their cycle of crime. And, you know, it's really questionable as to whether or not enough is being done by the courts, judiciary, social services to make this stop. Bottom line is people are being assaulted and, and, and something needs to be done about this. All right. Well, listen, thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning, Tony. Thank you so much. That's Tony Hunt, the general manager of loss prevention at London Drugs. I can't even imagine the level of frustration that some retailers must feel uh, in the way that Tony was just describing about what they have to deal with. Not just shoplifting, which is bad enough, but we're talking about violent shoplifting, uh, which is scary for the employees, scary for everybody, scary for the business. And then you've got repeat offenders. Vancouver Police said one of the 130 suspects that was arrested in their shoplifting crackdown was arrested six times.
That's crazy. Found a way in. Simi at cknw.com. We will have more to say about that.